Who knows what Christmas is all about? We celebrate the birth of Jesus every year. It's a story we know well. But how much of our version of the story truly reflects what actually happened? How well do our pageants, our movies, our nativity sets, and other icons represent what the scriptures actually say? This is Greg Hall, and this Christmas season, won't you please join me as we seek to clarify the season by rethinking Advent. Well, I'm glad you've joined in, and I'm excited about this week because we'll be venturing on a little journey together. Over the next six days, we'll be taking short looks at the Western culture's version of the Advent story that many of us have adopted. Over the years, in my roles of pastor and professor, I've spent some time researching and thinking about the Advent of the Christ. And what did I find? Well, <laughs> First, I had to admit that I wasn't really sure what Advent meant, and I found out that a strict definition is simply the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And in a Christian worldview, the Advent speaks of the events surrounding the arrival of the notable person of Jesus. And as I studied, I came across several things that I assumed to be true that really weren't supported by the biblical text. And in addition, there were several aspects of the Advent that I never really associated with the story. And if I'm being honest, I used to be completely satisfied with Linus's answer to Charlie Brown's question. But Linus's Christmas speech was not quite seven verses out of Luke's gospel. At best, it was a simplification of the topic. The six episodes in this Advent series will be shorter than usual. But we will be looking at some common misconceptions and oversights in our rendition of the Advent story. And today, we'll be looking into the family <laughs> to see if we've understood their situation as best we can. And as we begin looking at the family, their situation, and their reality, I want to propose we actually look at the family. I would just encourage you to Google nativity paintings. And no matter what browser you're on, you're going to get a look at the way the nativity scene, the family, has been rendered in our Western culture. We need to understand that a large part of our understanding of the nativity story has come from songs that we sing or paintings that were created to help tell the story. And in the name of trying to make the story more interesting or compelling, some artistic license has somewhere along the way seemed to have robbed us of the full truth. And unfortunately, this is the process of how truth turns into legend. And don't we already have an ample supply of legends that we maintain during the holiday season? So in order to keep some distance between truth and fiction, it's imperative that with this story, we correctly reflect the truth as best we can. One of the ways we will do this is to get back into the scriptures. And where do we go to find the Advent stories? 
The only places that discuss any details surrounding the birth of Christ are in the beginning of the two Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And the nativity narrative starts in Matthew chapter 1. And you might be tempted to say it begins in verse 18 of chapter 1, but that's not where Matthew begins the narrative. He starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And it's that part of chapter 1 that everyone skips over to get to the Christmas story. But it's the genealogy that Matthew uses to give context to the birth narrative. Let me explain what I mean. So there's a lot going on in the first 17 verses of Matthew. Way too much to cover here. But the main thing I want to point out is the mention of women in the genealogy. Because women had no place in genealogies in that setting. It was the men that determined the Messiah's lineage. But Matthew includes women in Jesus's genealogy. It's a royal genealogy, and in it, Matthew is outlining the reasons why we should consider Jesus to be a king. He's talking about the family. And in the genealogy, he gives a really weird family history. And my guess is you haven't read through this genealogy any time recently, <laughs> especially this Christmas season. So let's just take a look at it and see what he's doing by mentioning these ladies. Well, the first woman mentioned is in verse 3. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar's the first woman mentioned. And I don't know if you've been back in the Old Testament recently to visit the story of Tamar. It's not generally the type of family story that you'd want to rehash over and over again, especially in this setting. Why is that? It's because Tamar's story is surrounded by sexual scandal. When Tamar's husband died, Tamar dressed up as a prostitute and seduced her widowed father-in-law to produce seed in the line of Christ. And as backwards as that story sounds, you need to understand that it was Tamar in this story that was doing the right thing. And why would you include this story? It seems like this would have been an easy one for Matthew to skip over. But that's not it. As we go down just two more verses, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Do we remember Rahab? Rahab wasn't even Jewish. She was a Canaanite. She doesn't even come from the right lineage. And do we remember her profession? She too was enveloped in sexual scandal. She was a prostitute. So in the first five verses of Matthew's argument as why we should consider Jesus king, he's included two radical stories that are surrounded by sexual scandal. But he's got a purpose. At the end of verse five, after Rahab is mentioned, Ruth is mentioned. Now, Ruth was a great lady, but she was Moabite. She is descended from a people who are identified as impure. But she too gets past the impureness of her status and is included in the genealogy of the Christ. And just when you thought we probably should be done, in the very next verse, it hints towards a woman by the name of Bathsheba. Some of our English translations actually include Bathsheba's name, but her name is not in the original text. It actually refers to her as the her of Uriah. And let me just ask you a simple question. Was there any type of a scandal, maybe a sexual scandal, that Bathsheba was involved with uh, that surrounded the story of Bathsheba? 
Well, yeah, because David was involved in sexual misconduct when he invited her to the palace. And it wasn't just that scandal, but then David had her husband murdered. Well, we're six verses in to the family story that Matthew is presenting in order to convince people in his readership that this Jesus character is a true king. And we've already got multiple scandalous stories brought to mind. And I usually say that when something weird presents itself in the Bible, it's probably there for a reason. And that's exactly what we have here. Matthew could have easily skipped over these stories, but he decided to include them because he knew that the birth story, the nativity, the advent story that he was retelling was also involved in scandal. It involved a young lady who turned up pregnant before she got married. And even though we as readers get to understand the method of her pregnancy through the Holy Spirit, it doesn't negate the fact that as this family was going through this process, they were embroiled in sexual scandal. Because really, how many people are going to believe the story of the virgin birth? Each of the women mentioned in the genealogy aren't what they seem to be on the outside. Despite their life circumstances, their lineage, their gender, and yes, even sometimes their chosen profession, they are all righteous women that show great faith in God. Matthew is legitimizing Mary's story through the mention of these other stories in the line of Jesus. And why is this genealogy lifting up women? Because it's through the woman that the seed was promised. If we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The virgin conception of Jesus is a unique fulfillment of Scripture, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to the fathers. When the narrative begins in Matthew 1.18, Mary is likely 15 or 16 years of age. That's people's best guess. And she agrees to give up the perception of her purity. And it's Joseph who can legally divorce her when she's found to be pregnant. The text says that Joseph was a just man. Another way that could be translated is that Joseph was a righteous man. That's how he's described. And the law of the land required Mary's death in such a circumstance. But Joseph means to put her away secretly. And in so doing, this story alludes to the fact that justice comprehends mercy. Joseph was a just man, and he extended mercy. It's a great foretelling of what Jesus will be doing for the world. Mary and Joseph are both people of faith, and they knew their scripture well. We know this from the response Mary gives in a song that's recorded in Luke 1, 46 through 56. And if you haven't read that song recently, I would suggest that it's worthy to include that in your story of the Advent. The song that she sings is full of scriptural quotes and allusions. It's also in this Advent story that Joseph is visited by angels in a series of dreams. And that might sound somewhat familiar because there is a Joseph in the Old Testament that had dreams and interpreted dreams. And in that Old Testament story, those dreams led to the salvation of Israel. And this new Joseph, 
likewise, has dreams that will lead to the salvation of the nation of Israel, but not just that nation, because this is the advent of the Christ that will save the whole world. So as you're running around this week, getting ready for that big day, the day that we celebrate Christ's birth, I'd like you just to reflect on the fact that this would have been a very stressful event to live through for the family, even with all the promises that were given. The birth that we read about in the Gospels is a natural birth. And what I mean is that Jesus participates with us in our humanity, but he is also Emmanuel. He is God with us. And God gave Jesus a family of humility, willing to suffer everything that comes with the events surrounding his birth. The intro music I'm using for this Advent series is Jazzy Bells by D. Yankee. And at the end of each of our episodes this week, I'll have some music, a song that fits the topic that we've been talking about. And today's song is just simply called Mary's Song. And while it doesn't verbatim copy Mary's song out of the scripture, it does pull certain sentences and puts them together very nicely. So now let's listen to Renee Hoogstad, accompanied by her husband, Mark. But let's imagine we're listening to Mary. to you. 